to read uh, the Bible verse, which is Exodus 34, 1 to 7. The Lord said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up to Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Thank you. Yeah, please. Almighty God, thank you. Thank you for your grace towards us. I pray that you will bless us in our hearing, bless Philip in the speaking of the words you want us to hear. For your glory, Father. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Rob. If you want to just show the title slide, uh, Tracy. So, yeah, this is what it's about. Our rebellion, God's love, and God's justice. And we're going to explore these three themes, one at a time, and then we're going to see how miraculously they can be reconciled. But first of all, some background to the text. So, the book of Exodus recalls the enslavement of the Israelites to the Egyptians and God's deliverance from that plight. He sent seven plagues to Egypt, I think it's seven, and the last one, the Passover, Pharaoh agreed to let the people go. But God's miracles didn't end there. He divided the Red Sea for the fleeing Israelites while he was drowning the pursuing army of Egypt. He provided the people with food in the desert and in a mirac- and he gave them the law, his guide to the way of life that honors God and ensures harmony in the community. What a good God! How much they must have appreciated him. <coughs> Appreciate him? Did they? We're going to see. But first, let's remind ourselves of what these laws are. God's law that God inscribed for Moses on the two tablets of stone. If we put the slide up, you can read them out with me, the second one. That's it. Can you read that? So, yeah, you shall read it out. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. 
Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Honour your father and your mother. You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false witness against your neighbour. You shall not covet. Covet. Yeah. So, yeah, all those laws God wrote on the stone tablets that he gave to Moses as he met the Lord on Mount Sinai. And we're talking here before the text that we've just read, okay? They, God went up, he went up once. He came down with stone tablets. The people waited. And they waited. And they waited. And then our story for today commences. The story, as I said, is in three parts. Our rebellion, God's love and God's justice. Our rebellion, God's love and God's justice. Because we all know, don't we, what happened, briefly have the slide, Tracy, when the people had waited long enough. They said to Aaron, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for that fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So they decided, in other words, while Moses was up the mountain, that he was just lost or dead and they ought to worship in their own way and the best way would be a golden statue, yeah? Yeah, golden statue. So they said to Aaron, it went on, as Aaron took what they handed him, they gave him some of the gold that the Egyptians had given him, given them, and went to make an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fastening it, fashioning it with a tool. And then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. It's all in the 32nd chapter of Exodus. And then the fun started. The people rose early. They sacrificed burnt offerings. And they presented fellowship offerings. And afterwards, they sat down to eat and drink and get up to indulge in revelry. Revelry! Sex and drugs and rock and roll! Yes! And a direct contradiction of the laws that God was proclaiming through Moses. Not least the image probably the adultery. Yeah, anyway, Moses was furious. It says, when Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned. He threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. But he did plead to God not to annihilate the people straight away. There were still consequences for the people. Moses, it says, took the calf the people had made, burnt it in the fire, ground it to powder, scattered it on the water and made the Israelites drink it. Yuck. And there was some violence as well with the Levites' crowd control and sickness uh, as well in the group. So yeah, we may laugh at the Israelites. I mean, how dumb was that to bow down to an idol? Yeah? But rebellion against God is a pattern right throughout Scripture and right throughout human life. Begin it with Eden, Adam and Eve, who disobeyed God's command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, tempted by Satan. When the evil of humanity was so great with Noah that God sent the flood to destroy everyone except his family. Later, Israel being settled in the promised land, they bowed down again and again to idols. So the people, so the individuals. Even heroes of the faith like Abraham lied repeatedly that Sarah was his sister. He thought it would save his skin. 
David, who wrote all these wonderful psalms, seduced a woman, Bathsheba, the wife of another man, and led him on to command murder. That's in the Bible, but we're not immune, are we? So Jeremiah wrote, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17, 9. Isaiah said, all of us have become like one who is unclean. All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind our sins sweep us away. Isaiah 64, 6. Let me just ask you, what were your thoughts when you read those commandments earlier? Can you honestly say you obey them? Do we not covet things or people? Do we not take God's name in vain sometimes? Do we not gossip about people and bear false witness? Just some examples. Some of you may remember long ago we had a Prime Minister called Theresa May. How many Prime Ministers ago was that? Anyway, Theresa May said the most bad thing she'd ever done was running through a field of wheat. She said, that was the worst thing I ever did. Do we believe her? I think we all have corners of our lives of which we are ashamed, dark corners of our lives. Let me just tell you one thing about my rebellion. When I was at university, I got annoyed about a situation a girl and alcohol were involved. And I kicked at a small window of a department store that Julie smashed. Was I ashamed? I am now. I'm deeply ashamed to even mention it to you. But at the time, I was quite proud of it among my friends. Doesn't that show us how pervasive sin is, especially when we don't know the Lord? And I think maybe we can just think for a brief moment about dark corners of our lives because I think what, what I think it helps with is getting into that really difficult and problematic belief. I'm a good person. I've done nothing wrong. I don't need forgiveness. When we just think about the dark corners of our lives, we realize how false and a lie from hell that is. Amen? Yeah. I'm a Christian now, but can I really say my hands are clean and my heart's pure? I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure I always drive considerately. I get really fed up and impatient when people crawl in the right lane of the motorway, especially when there's no one in the middle. And I can't blame the BMW for that. Okay, it's the way BMW drivers drive, isn't it? But I can't blame the car, it's me. And equally, if you ask Kenrick whether I'm always really even-tempered and peaceful, he would tell you, not necessarily. So yeah, as Dan mentioned last week, we all need to keep short accounts with God and with the help of those we trust. He said, uh, he quoted this verse, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so you may be healed. So yeah, the key background to the passage today is the rebellion against God, and we have to confess that that rebellion is also ours. It's not something we can resolve by ourselves, but we should see that God's response is one of love and justice. Love and justice, if we show the next slide briefly. 
In his love, he calls Moses to come again up the mountain. He's forgiven this rebellion, orgy, whatever we call it, idol, idol worship. So the law could be renewed and the people could be redeemed. He's a loving God of second chances, right? Jesus gave Peter a second chance after his betrayal and the crucifixion. The whole story of the prodigal son is about giving a second chance, isn't it? He gives us second and third and fourth chances. He forgave me for smashing the shop window and many other transgressions that we won't go into. Such is his love. And in my case, Jesus came to knock on the door of my heart. Many years later, I opened and my life was forever changed, as Rob was saying about his time when he was 17 as well. Very parallel. So yeah, what we can see from the text we've been reading is that God in his love seeks a relationship with Moses, even as he does with us. God is a personal God. He's not an impersonal force, you know, may the force be with you, as it says in Star Wars, although I need to watch the films. He did that with Adam and Eve, for example. He walked with them in the garden, didn't he, in the cool of the evening. With Abraham, his friend. And as he does here with Moses, it says, And the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord, 34.5. God, it says, became fully present on earth with Moses, his friend. Don't you see the parallel with what Jesus did when he was born in the stable in Bethlehem, when the word became flesh, John's gospel tells us, and made his dwelling among us. God was present with Moses here on earth, just in the same way that Jesus was born. So yeah, <clears throat> if we see the next slide. Uh, God tells his name to Moses, as he did in the burning bush, but he tells a lot more detail. You remember what he said mainly then was, I am that I am. I am the one that I am that I am. But now he says this about his character and his loving intentions for humanity. Let's read it together. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Amen. So yeah, despite the rebellion, he was willing to forgive the Israelites for the idol, the golden calf. He forgave their wickedness and their rebellion and their sin. He gave them again the law. He guided them to the promised land. He didn't just abandon them in the wilderness or wipe them out. So yeah, his love comes forth in this passage despite his holiness, yeah? Do you notice the thing about Moses alone can go and all the sheep even have to get off the mountain? That's because God is so holy. God was so holy. No one is to come to be seen on the mountain. Come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So yeah, this is a love that doesn't mean that God is just benevolent rather than indifferent and hostile. Again, it's to do with relationship. It's a love that stems from God's desire for relationship. He desires the relationship he had with Adam and Eve that was then broken well, by their rebellion. And it's renewed as it begins to be renewed in his covenant with Abraham and what follows here in the Exodus. It's that relationship he sought with me when I reached out to him in July 1997. The relationship that Rob mentioned too. 
the relationship that God is seeking with you if you've not yet met him. He's calling you to come into his loving arms, to trust in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and to acknowledge him as your saviour and Lord. Amen. Amen. But there is also a proclamation of God's justice, if we can see the slide. Let's read this together. It's tough stuff. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. We tend to like hearing about God's love, but we get kind of queasy when we talk about justice. When do we ever sing about God's justice? You know, the overwhelming, precious justice of God. No, we don't. Love has all the best songs. And yet, justice is essential, I would argue. Justice is essential. For one thing, God's holiness that we mentioned cannot abide with sin. But it's not just that. Love, it can be argued, without justice is not love. Love without justice is not love. The preacher Mike Bickle puts it this way. He says, all of God's judgments are aimed at what interferes with love. Yeah? All of God's judgments are aimed at what interferes with love. And I'm going to give you some examples to clarify, which Bill Johnson in his book uh, mentions. So, for one thing, supposing you take someone you love to the doctor and they have a tumour, uh, what you want from the doctor is judgment on the tumour that threatens your loved one's life. You want them to do everything possible to remove it you don't want the doctor to show mercy and sympathy to the tumour, a kind of specific interest in it as a separate being. No, you want summary justice, amen? amen. Or supposing a neighbour shows aggression and violence towards children, do you show mercy to the sinner? You may do, but you would also want to inform the authorities and protect children. Mercy to a sinner doesn't require you to allow harm to others. Or again, a parent whose child persists in dangerous behavior like running out in the road, the parent, through love, has to restrain the child's freedom, amen, to keep them safe. And in that same way, God's justice keeps us safe. There's been so many stories about uh, when terrible things have happened. The, I think of the, um, the guys in America, um, what are they called, the, who live a very simple life? Oh. Amish, yeah, that's right. They had a terrible uh, murder, didn't they? But they, the way they proclaimed forgiveness was just amazing and it moved the whole world. So acceptance of God's justice in this life or in eternity is what I believe enabled them and us at times as well to find peace through forgiveness, yeah? but. Justice has to be there in the background from the Lord. But still, this is a very difficult sentence. I'm going to focus on it uh, for a little while still because it says, I'm going to punish not just the sinner but the succeeding generations. How can that be just? What have they done? Well, I think there are a few ways to understand that. One is parents who sin for example, a life of crime or addiction or domestic violence, 
might well influence the children to behave in the same way. That's one possibility. Or if they don't, the effects of sin in terms of poverty, a life made difficult by flashbacks, memories of abuse, mean that suffering for sin is not confined to the perpetrator. The New King James talks about visiting the iniquity of the parent. <clears throat> and I think that gives some foundation for that suggestion. It's a warning, in other words, about the destructive power of sin. But I think it goes deeper as well. If we go on to the next slide, Tracy. I think the verse is giving us a clue as to how all three themes of this passage, our rebellion, God's love, and God's justice, come together to show God's essential goodness, which is the theme of this sermon series we're starting today. And I think we get some clues from the great prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, as to how love and justice can be reconciled. One thing they say is that one day the children won't suffer for the parents' sin. Jeremiah says, in those days, people will no longer say the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, 31:29. Ezekiel says, the one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent nor will the parents share the guilt of the child, 1820. But there's still a question here, isn't there? These are mysterious prophecies when we see them alongside Exodus. How can the children be forgiven in God's justice? But Jeremiah and Ezekiel also write of the law no longer being on tablets of stone that Moses brought down the mountain twice, but being in people's hearts, amen? Jeremiah wrote, this is the covenant I will make, speak God's word, that I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put the law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be my, their God and they will be my people, Jeremiah 31, 33. And Ezekiel says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, 36, 26. But how do these come about in God's love? How do we get the heart of flesh away from the heart of stone? And there's one answer. It's Jesus. Jesus did not claim to override the law, the law that Moses had inscribed on the tablets of stone. He said in the Sermon on the Mount, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, amen? Matthew 5:17. Jesus came, as God did on the mountain, to be with sinful humanity and to redeem them as he was God himself. He said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Remember, Jesus is not a man who gave some wonderful words. Jesus is a man. Jesus is also God. Amen. John 14:9. And Jesus, as God, and humanity took on the cross the punishment that was due for us, to us for our sin. Jesus was the innocent child of God. Remember what the, what the text said, the innocent child of God who was punished instead of the children of the sinners. Jesus was the one whose death enables forgiveness of sin by the holy God on the cross. We see fulfilled those words of Exodus, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, 
slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin through Jesus on the cross. Amen. Amen. These are the words of God's steadfast love. And yet also on the cross, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Those are the words of God's eternal justice, which he allowed to be visited on his own child, Jesus Christ, that we might be set free. Amen. Amen. Jesus, the one who said, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends, John 15, 13. Jesus died for us, his friends. Amen. So then as Jesus was raised from the dead, he sent us the Holy Spirit after his ascension to live in us who trust in him as our Savior and Lord, fulfilling the prophecy. Fulfilling the prophecy, the, Lord is no long, the law is no longer something external, but it's written on our hearts. It hurts to transgress, amen? amen. Don't you feel like me when you hear people using the same Jesus or God? As a swear word, spat out in anger, yeah? Doesn't it make your flesh creep? I do, I find it does. Don't you also feel a tension as you grow as a follower of Jesus between a growing awareness of our desire to rebel and thankfulness for God's forgiveness? For example, Paul wrote, what I do not do, the good I want to do, but I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I want to do, I keep on doing. Romans 7:19. we are all still tempted. But on the other hand, we're more and more grateful for God's forgiveness, his loving forgiveness, as Paul also wrote. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that tension between our desire to sin and our gratefulness to God our awareness that we want to avoid it, in other words, is the Holy Spirit shaping us to be more like Jesus. And God's loving justice, as I come to a, to a close, does not end with the wonder of forgiveness on the cross and our sanctified guiding by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is going to bring justice, ultimately, when he returns and proclaims the day of judgment. Amen. Jesus said, very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come that the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in itself, he's granted the Son to have life in itself and he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Bits of John's Gospel we don't always like to focus on. We like to focus on the love bit, but it's the judge justice is there as well. John 5, 25 to 27. Injustice will not have the last word thanks to God sending Jesus in his love. And thanks to the resurrection, we can look forward to a new creation where justice is truly fulfilled in the love of God. So yeah, friends, judgment day will be the ultimate expression of God's justice. But in his love, He's not going to rush to bring it about. C.S. Lewis reminds us, when the author steps on the stage, the play is over, right? When the author steps on the stage, the play is over. When God and Jesus come, then there's no more scope for repentance, no more scope for forgiveness. 
Peter wrote rightly this, he said, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. 2 Peter 3, 9. That means you, you, everyone, everyone you know who you long to come to faith, God is waiting. He is patient. He does not want anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. Amen. God's love and God's justice. So as I close, let's reflect on God's goodness. We've got to think about our own rebellion. We all have that impulse, don't we, to act in ways contrary to God's law. But also let's think about God's love that forgives those who truly repent and turn away from sin. And finally, his mighty justice that was satisfied by the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. His justice that will be fulfilled for all eternity on the day of judgment, when those whose names are written in the book of life, trusting in his salvation and forgiveness will be exonerated of all their rebellion for a blissful eternity. And thereby they gain the reward that only Jesus deserved, but which he won for everyone who follows him through God's love and God's justice. Amen. Amen.